don't feel like you have to follow the status quo. You are you for a reason. You bring something to the table and don't feel like you have to recreate your table to look like everybody else's table. Your difference might be what some kid is looking for to help them to excel. So don't change who you are just to fit in because you don't look like everybody else or you don't teach like everybody else or you may not do what everybody else, but you may reach those kids like everyone else could not. Hello and welcome to School Me, a podcast from the National Education Association. On this show, we talk to seasoned educators and experts to give new educators the tools they need to thrive in their careers. I'm your host, Natika Samuels. Teaching isn't the most diverse profession, and our schools are often segregated. So too often, educators of color find themselves in a situation where they are the only one, and students can feel isolated as well in schools. Joining us today, we have Erica Avent, a Mississippi teacher, 14 years into her career teaching grades three through six. She also mentors as an adjunct professor of teacher education with the University of Mississippi. She serves on the Mississippi Association of Education Board and is working towards her EDD in elementary education with an emphasis on diversifying the K through 12 environment. Her dissertation focuses on more diversity in the classroom and supporting minority students and educators. Welcome to School Me. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here today. Let's start off with a little bit about you and your history. So how did you decide to become a teacher and then later on a mentor? Well, I left my hometown of Forest, Mississippi in 2000 and I am enrolled in the University of Mississippi and I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people and so for some reason as a kid I always internalized that it had to be something else other than being a teacher. But I was that kid who would play school during the summer and I was that kid who mentored with the Leapfrog program in Boys and Girls of America. And so I remember my junior year at school, I was miserable. And I remember calling my mom up and she was like, I wish you would stop fighting your calling and go into education. I was like, but teachers don't make any money. <laughs> she was like, but they're happy. And she's like, you need to search for happiness. And so being a junior, I changed my major this summer for my senior year. And I did a dual major of biology and education. It made me be a fifth year graduate, but I have been running towards it ever since. It has been my passion. And what grades have you been teaching? What subjects have you been teaching? I started my career as a sixth grade science teacher. I got overwhelmed after four years and I left teaching sixth grade science and I started working with curriculum in another district. I realized I came out the classroom too early because I was longing for it. So I went back in and I taught fifth grade math and science for two years. Transitioned to a new district. I did third grade science and then we became all inclusive. I taught everything in third grade. And so then I transi transitioned back to being a sixth grade science teacher. So sixth grade science has been my love and passion for the majority of my career. So you found where your comfort zone is in yes. terms of the classroom and subject matter. But I want to take it back to this feeling of overwhelm that you described in your fourth okay. year. What happened? I 
did my student teaching in a very fluent district. And I guess I thought, oh, this is what it was gonna be like. Started my first year teaching, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And because I had gotten a scholarship in our state called the William Winter Scholarship, I had to work in a critical needs district. I had never been in a critical needs district before. I walked into this district, and literally, i never forget, when I moved into my classroom, it was raining outside. And when it rained, the walls cried in the building that I was in. <laughs> I spent all this time putting my classroom together the day before, and I come back in, and everything on one wall was just destroyed. And I remember thinking, wow. It was a lot. My first two years, not only was I a new teacher, I had a great mentor, though I will say that. I had a great support system. I had a mentor, but I was also working on my master's my first two years of teaching. So I was just overwhelmed. I was three hours from home, and I was in grad school. And so by my fourth year, I hit a wall of feeling like, am I being effective? I was a sixth grade science teacher, and a lot of times they would pull me off of science to do math or to do reading or to do language arts. I just felt like I wasn't effective because my kids weren't growing. I was in a failing district. I remember walking into my principal office and saying, I'm not the best person for these kids, y'all. I need to really go and let somebody else come in and be what they need. And I remember her saying, if you would believe in yourself as much as I believe in you, you will see that you are the best thing for now. And so those words that she gave to me still resonate with me today. So how did race factor into your career on the early side? Were you in a district that had a lot of students of color and people who looked like you, or were you in a more isolated environment? My first teaching assignment was in a district that was a reflection of me. The majority of the students were African-American students. The majority of the teachers were African-American women. It was one of the most empowering times in my teaching career. My principal, my vice principal, my lead teacher. So I never felt like I couldn't go to someone. I never felt like there was no one I could talk to. There were several of new teachers who we was all young. And so I had that clique of people to go to. I had a lot of veteran teachers who were my mentor teachers. So I was just surrounded by people who looked like me. It was a really good time in my teaching career because I felt supported, which I think every new teacher needs to feel, which was very different from the latter part of my career. I transitioned to a district because it was close to home at this point in time. So um, I came into this district as a teacher assistant and it was grades two and three. And out of about, I think it was like maybe 30 teachers, there was only five who were African-American women. They were all much older than me, but they were very nurturing on me because I think they saw that I felt like I was isolated. I didn't really feel like I had a lot in common with the teachers around me. Because I was a teacher assistant, I felt like they thought I didn't know what I was doing. So I felt like I was having to prove myself to people that I never had to do before. And it was one of the most isolating times in my life. I was told my whole life that you have to be twice as good to be considered half as good. Yes. And going into a new career, we have other people's children in your hands. and. Maybe the parents are giving extra scrutiny to you. How do you think that teachers of color, women especially, maybe African-American men too, how do they find the support that they need if their school isn't providing it for them in a structured way? You know, some schools are really good about that, having a mentorship program, but some aren't. And even if there's a mentoring program in place, that doesn't mean that that person 
is going to be able to understand what you're going through if the diversity factor isn't there. So how can someone who's in that position where they are fairly isolated and just need help, what should they do to find what they need? If you can't find a mentor, whether it be in your district, in your school, in another school in your district, maybe look at the next district over. I have presented at conferences before. I always say, if you need someone to talk to, send me an email. I cannot tell you how many emails I've gotten from early education who's just like, hey, I met you at this conference. I sat in on your session. And I love to just bounce these ideals off of you or just have somebody to talk to. And because of that, it's pushed me to be a mentor because I didn't have that. And so I work with the Mississippi Teacher Fellowship Program, which work with teachers in critical needs districts. And the majority of those teachers look like me and they need that extra mentorship that they may not be, they may not get. Find you somebody. The, the great age of technology that we're in now, there are so many forums, there are so many groups that you can just say, hey, I'm looking for a mentor. We can't expect help to come to us if we haven't issued out the cry for help. So some people might say, you're all teachers, you're all living in the same kind of area. Why bring race into it? Why would the race of the other people around you make a difference in your career? How would you answer that? Think about when you walk into a room. Most people, when they walk in a room, we gravitate to likeness, right? So when you have no likeness around you, what do you gravitate towards? You feel lost. Not to say that race is the dividing factor I think it's a factor of comfort. Yes, you're all teachers, but you have to get to that point that you feel like we're all teachers together because sometimes you're not all teachers together. I've had teachers to say, oh, well, she's intimidating. Why am I intimidating? Because of what others have said, because I'm very outspoken, because, and I've learned, it's because I believe in myself. That's the one thing I've learned from coming from the district that I started out with, that you have to believe in yourself. And that's any tip that I can give to an educator who may find themselves in a situation where they feel isolated because of diversity. You have to believe in who you are as a person. Can't nobody take that from you. I literally have had parents to move their kids. I had a parent move the kid out of my classroom because I was too exuberant. And when I asked my principal, what does too exuberant mean? And he was like, well, I think you're just so, you know, you're loud and you're excitable. You talk with your hands and you're just and I'm like, so let me see if I got this right. She doesn't want a teacher who's excited about education and gung-ho about science and to make their kid feel that way. Oh, okay, well, yeah, he needs to be moved because I'm not the teacher for him. And I've learned not to apologize for who I am as a person. And what about the students you bring up? I'm assuming that the students reflected the teachers and, and it was not a very diverse school either. It was not a very diverse school. One of the reasons why I did not actually want to work in this district when I first started in my career is because I was like, well, I want to work with kids that need someone to believe in them and help them. And I felt like, oh, this district wasn't a reflection of that. Well, then I realized, no, my district was. Those kids needed somebody. Those kids who didn't have those diverse faces in their teachers, they needed someone who looked like me to help them, to push them, to make them realize, no, I have high expectations for you, and you're going to meet my expectations because this is not a democracy in this classroom. I'm dictating that you're going to do the best that you can do in this class, and that D that you give me is not best work. That's not best effort at this point. Why do you think it's important for 
students to see teachers who look like them? Everyone wanna feel like they have somebody. Everyone wants to feel like someone is a mirror of who they are. There are some things that I will understand that a teacher who is not of diverse backgrounds may not understand. Like, I don't give homework on Wednesdays. I don't. I have had teachers say, why do you don't give homework on Wednesdays? Like, well, I grew up in the African-American church. We don't have no time on Wednesday to do homework. That's, you going to choir rehearsal, you going to Bible study, you're going to be at church all night. There are certain points, um, one of the things I do during the school year, I call around to area churches and find out when the revivals are. And people's like, why would you do that? Because when you're in revival, you're not doing any homework. You're in revival that whole week. Yeah, and that really underscores the importance of knowing the culture of your school community and being competent in that particular culture. And I guess you being from Mississippi and teaching yes. in Mississippi, you have that advantage. So let's say that you have a teacher who is not from where they are now teaching and they have a whole new set of customs and cultural points to learn. What do you think is the first step that they should take as a newer educator in a new place to make sure that they get their hand on the pulse of what's happening in their school? Be a sponge and soak up anything and everything you can. And I say that, go into the situation and talk to a new teacher who just came the year before or two years prior and be like, hey, you know, you just got here. You know, if there was anything you could tell to yourself that was coming in, what would you say? What are some things? Talk to the oldest teacher in that school. They have so much information. Make those connections. When you see a student of color who's in a predominantly white school, what do you do when you see a child who seems like they might not be doing so well with being one of the only ones? I try to talk to them not just as their teacher, but as a kid who has experienced that. I went to school at a college where I was one of few that looked like me. And so I understand that feeling of feeling isolation. I'm a parent now of two little girls who were experiencing that. It's very hard to tell a, I work primarily with sixth graders to say, keep your chin up and it's gonna be okay. You can push through because you're talking to a sixth grader. So I'm an advocate of trying to make sure that there's at least one person I compare that kid up with. So I cannot tell you how many times I've ate lunch with kids who feel like, there's no one in the cafeteria that looks like them that understands the fact that, no, they don't have a Lunchable, and no, they don't have macaroni like everybody else. Their lunch of choice from, from home is neck bones and cabbage and bread. And I'm like, hey, you got neck bones and cabbage? I got black eyed peas, and, um, and I got some cornbread today, too. And so how your mama make her cornbread? I make mine in a skillet, too. Just to make those connections that make them feel like there is someone to understand what they're going through. Thanks for listening to School Me, and a quick thank you to all of the NEA members listening. If you have a question for one of our experts or just need some support as you're getting your career started, please leave us a message on our line at 240-780-8329. That's 240-780-8329. And your voicemail might be played on air. You can also email your question to us at schoolmepleas at NEA.org. That's school me, please, all one word, at NEA.org. So you actually do academic work on this issue of diversity in education. Can you talk to me a little bit about what your academic exploration of this has been, sort of separately from your personal experience? 
Sure. A couple of years ago, I started with the teacher leadership initiative that NEA put out and the TLI program. And within that program, you have to do a capstone. And so my capstone about a problem within the school that you was in uh, was around the lack of African-American males in my district and in my school. There are no African-American teachers in my school and African-American male teachers. And so but I was looking at African-American males were the majority of the behavior problems, but they're a minority in the school. And so I was like, you know what? I feel like if we will bring in some minority faces, this will help these kids. And so I um, started a mentoring program, Positive Interactions, where we brought in African-American male mentors to come to these kids in their own way, talking to them about, you know, gangs and being leaders and this is your time to be the people that you want to be and just all different types of topics. And so my capstone led to my dissertation. I'm working on my EDD right now and I am ABD, all but dissertation. My dissertation surrounds looking at diversifying the teacher pipeline. I found that since 1954, with Brown versus Board of Education, you know, that was such a landmark case. And how do you integrate not only your students, but you integrate your teachers, you integrate your administration? No one gave us a handbook of how that happened. So since Brown versus Board of Education, African-American teachers have steadily declined since then. And so my research is into why and what barriers are these teachers facing that's keeping them from going into the classrooms. So can we get a sneak peek? Do you have any answers? <laughs> a lot of things such as lack of mentorship, identity, but things that we also know, the praxis. A lot of African-American teachers are not prepared to take the praxis, and so if they can't pass the praxis, they can't get certified, and if you can't get certified, you can't be in the classroom. So that's interesting because it mirrors the problem that we're seeing with testing. Like a lot of people say that testing is inherently racist or yes. inherently biased against yes. brown and black students. And we're seeing it replicated in the actual pipeline for teachers. So yes. what do you say to people that are asking why? Why are black teachers or black aspiring teachers less prepared to go into the career in general? I say that a lot of these tests are created on a bias. A lot of the questions are created on a bias. A lot of the preparation are by teachers that do not look like them. And so when they're asked these questions or the written portion of the exam and everything, the one thing they're drawing it from is their past experience. And if their past experience has been nothing into what they're being tested on, they're not going to do well. This is just like if I told you you was gonna have a test on Christmas trees. And if you ain't never seen a Christmas tree, you don't know, you can't identify a Christmas tree, you probably can't even spell a Christmas tree, how can I expect you to pass the test on Christmas tree? And so I think that's what we're experiencing with our teacher education at this time. This is kind of a sidebar. No, you can. <clears throat> they just held like HBCU, NEA, Praxis preparation mm -hmm. boot camp. So I was wondering why they wanted to have that boot camp, like why mm -hmm. that seemed like an especially necessary thing mm -hmm. to do. Because it seems like if you are going to school to become a teacher, that you should be given the information that you need to become a teacher. So I'm just like, why is that not happening? A lot of teacher education programs formulate differently from each other. Well, then, if you look at the data of how many African-American students were making 21s on ACT to overcome that hurdle, you see they're not. 
So you raise the interest of the ACT score, which is keeping more African-American teachers out of your program. I work in teacher education at one of the universities in Mississippi, and literally every semester I may have one or two African-American faces in my class. And for the intro, the 352 class, I have several African-American students, maybe three or four, you know, that's several for me. Well, when I get to 353, the second part of it, I don't have many because they couldn't pass the praxis. If that many students are failing, it's not on the students, it's on something else. Again, it's amazing how it's just reflecting what everybody's fighting about in testing right. in schools in general. If only a certain population of kids can pass, is it really their problem right. <laughs> that they can't do it? I'm from the standpoint of, we talk about alternate testing as teachers. Some people are just not good test takers. I'm not a good test taker. I'm not. But give me a school, pro a class project, give me something where we have to present or something, I'm not guilty socks off. So what are there other things we can do to help these students to be certified? And so a lot of states are looking at how can we diversify how we certify teachers to get them in the classrooms. We want our teachers to be the highest quality possible. Mm -hmm. And there has to be some way to know the quality of the teachers that you're getting and to control for the quality of teachers that you're getting. So knowing that the praxis or any of the other exams that you might be required to take are imperfect or outright biased, what can we do to ensure the quality of the teachers that we're letting our students come in contact with without perpetuating bias? Put a teacher in the classroom before you say that they're not a good teacher. Put them in the classroom and see what they can do. If I can put you in the classroom, and regardless of practice scores, this is that and the other, and you're a dynamic teacher, we can mentor you, we can grow you, we can teach you that. Let's work with that. We're in a teacher shortage. So we, we are not in a place to say, well, no, we're not going to put somebody in the classroom. So we got to do something different. Certification, as it is now, is not working. Because if it was working, we would see more faces in it. It's not working, and not just for African-Americans. So we gotta try something different. Why not start attacking this and see if it works? If it doesn't work, let's go back to the drawing board and try something else. Maybe we need to look at, why are kids not even majoring in education in the first place? But we can't keep doing the same thing because that's insanity. How did you come up with the idea for Positive Interactions and how did you source the mentors that you were gonna bring into the school and do you have an example of a real turnaround that you saw in a child's life because of that? Positive interactions came about because of my capstone. And basically, the students, when I first went to my principal about it, we was a newly formed school. And every year, the district discipline data comes out. And so, you know, I'm a data guru. So looking at the data, I was like, so looking at these schools, it seemed like all the black kids are the only kids getting in trouble, especially the black males. And we was a newly formed school, so we didn't have any data. It was like, we don't want to be on that list, so we need to do something. And so my principal, because he truly believes in me and he knows that I'm all about kids and what can be done for kids, he's like, so what do you think we should do? And I was like, well, first and foremost, you need to get some black faces in here for these black kids. But I said, since we can't hire nobody, I was like, why not bring in some mentors or something like that? And so he was like, well, what do you think? You know, draft me up a proposal. And so at first I was like, oh, yeah, we could do African-American girls because that's easy for me. I mean, I'm in a sorority. I'm in several church organizations. So I was like, yeah, we could just bring it. But then I was like, why be easy? Basically, we looked at the discipline on write-ups, the reports, and we chose the 15 students that had the most write-ups at that time. 
And that was my core group of students. And so I remember giving them a survey and was talking with them. And I'll never forget, a student said, I want somebody in here who life is like mine. I was like, how is your life? You know, what What do you mean? He was like, I need somebody to talk about the fact that they dead in prison and that their mama work all the time and that they have to raise their siblings. And then one student said, yeah, I need somebody to talk about how they don't want to be in a gang or they want to be more or they're the male in their home. And then when they come to school, y'all basically telling me I'm not the grown up, but I'm the grown up in my home. And so then I realized these kids were crying out for stories that were like them. So I brought in several people from the university where a lot of African-American faces for them because I want my kids to aspire. And I realized these kids just want somebody to pour into them. So I want somebody to come here and pour into them to talk about the fact that, hey, you are your own brand. And so I brought in Terrence Metcalf, who at that time his children were in the district. He is um, DK Metcalf's father who just got drafted to the Seattle Seahawks. And so Mr. Metcalf came in and he talked about, you are a brand. You are a, a hot commodity. But are you going to be a hot commodity who has great morals and this, that, no? Or you're going to be a hot commodity that people are like, man, I don't want to touch that commodity because it has too many things that comes along with it. It got too much baggage. He said, you got to check your baggage at the door. And my kids were just like, he's like, what do you mean? He's like, so you got to answer to a teacher. You got to answer to a principal. You got to answer to the bus driver. So this is just building you for what you're going to do in your brand. And I saw kids looking like, okay, okay. Because when they looked at him, he was what they wanted to be. He was a representation of what they felt success was. And so they realized, oh, if I want to be like him, I got to check my baggage. So if you were to talk to a new or aspiring educator and they want to know like their top tips for dealing with not being represented in their school or feeling a little bit isolated, what are like, the top three things you would tell them? Number three, find your tribe. Create your tribe if there's not one at your school. Create your one outside of your school because when you leave that place, you want to feel like you belong with somebody. So you need somebody you can go to Applebee's with and just chill out with. My second tip would be don't feel like you have to follow the status quo. You are you for a reason. You bring something to the table. And don't feel like you have to recreate your table to look like everybody else's table. Your difference might be what some kid is looking for to help them to excel. So don't change who you are just to fit in because you don't look like everybody else or you don't teach like everybody else or you may not do what everybody else, but you may reach those kids like everyone else could not. And my number one tip for him is know who you are. You have to know who you are as a person when you're going into a district where everybody doesn't look like you. I stand to who I am. Everybody know Miss Avon and not about those games. I'm about the business of reaching kids. And anything is not about that is not about me. I go into school every day fighting for kids that no one else is fighting for. I'm the teacher and me like, give them to me. I'm that teacher. And all my principles know, I stand on the principle of what is right. I'm always saying, when I look at my students and I'm looking in their faces, I imagine what I would want someone to treat my kids. I would want that teacher to go over and beyond for them, so I'm going to go over and beyond for my students. So you touched on sort of self-care. I think that was part of your third Oh, tip. yes. Um, how do you perform self-care for yourself? I struggled with it early in my career as an early educator. 
I would get to work early. I would stay late. I would go home and stay up doing work even more. And that attributed to me burning out because I was trying to be everything to everybody and I wasn't being anything to Erica. And so now I'm to the point, if I get to work early, I'm not staying late. And if I don't come early, I will stay late. When I leave, and just because I do have a husband and two children, if I leave at five, I don't take my teacher bag out the car. It, it stays in my car because my kids and my husband deserve to have me. Don't feel bad if you need to go get a pedicure or a manicure or journal. Um, I do believe that writing is cathartic, and it is. A lot of times, you know, people say something, you be like, I wish I had a set. Okay, well, I just write it down in my journal. So I can eliminate it. Because if you bottle all that stuff inside of you, it festers. I mean, you can't be the best teacher that you need to be for your students. What brings you to the classroom every day? What makes you excited? What excites you about your job and teaching every day? I fight so hard because I don't want kids to slip through the crack. I fight so hard for my own little girl, Aubrey. She has reading issues. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world because I pour into everybody else's child and I'm unable to pour into my own, but I see how much she tries and she has had some phenomenal teachers to pour into her. And so becoming a mom and seeing those teachers pour into her, it makes me want to pour into kids even more because I know they have the potential just like my baby does to be great. I don't know if I am inspiring the next Barack, but baby, I'm going to inspire the next Bryson and Jennifer and Jenny and Indira. I'm going to inspire all of them. What advice would you give to your younger self as you were starting your career to now? You implant one idea from now into your head later. What's the best advice you could give her? If I had to give myself one piece of advice when I first started teaching back in 2005, is that you don't have to prove yourself to nobody. The only person you have to prove yourself to is you and God. That's all. The first two years of my career, I think I spent so much time trying to prove that I was a value. And when I stopped trying to prove that I was a value and got on the attitude of, I can show you better than I can tell you, that's when I flourished. And when I moved to my new district, I resorted back to this, I gotta prove, I gotta prove, I gotta prove. And when I stopped saying, you know what? I don't prove, watch my footwork. You're gonna see me soar. And that's when I saw it. What's the one thing you wish you knew when you had started teaching? There is not a blueprint of a good teacher. The teacher I was in 2005 is totally different from the teacher I am in 2019. And most certainly would be different from the teacher I am in 2025. You're constantly growing. So don't stifle your, your growth by feeling like you've got to fit this mold because there isn't a mold. You are the prototype, so stop trying to change the prototype to fit other people. Thank you for talking to me today, Erica. It's been great. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of School Me. And if you find this podcast helpful, be sure to rate and review the show. It helps more people find us and the advice they need to survive their first few years in education. For even more tips and resources, you can visit us at neatoday.org slash school me.